0: Throwing elbows means that someone's gonna get it in the face. They're gonna be winners and they're gonna be losers, and you're trying your best to be a winner. And what does that mean for so many other people in the system?
1: From EdPost, it's Across Colors, a new show about how parents and educators from across the country are pushing to make schools better and more equal places for children to learn and grow. I'm De DeVega, your host. Today, we land in my hometown of New York City and the borough I've called home for the past two decades, Queens, New York. Queens is known as the most diverse part of the United States, but its school districts remain segregated. Joining me now are Mark Winston Griffith and Max Friedman, the hosts and creators of the podcast School Colors. They've spent months working on this show about my neighboring school district here in Queens. Mark and Max, thanks for being with us. Great to be here. I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in the Lower East Side Mm -hmm. of New York City of Manhattan in public housing. And I went to, I guess I'm going to put in air quotes here, bad schools as a kid. They were overcrowded, chaotic, underfunded. And frankly, if it wasn't for my parents and two really great music teachers that I had, I don't know where I would have ended up in my education journey. Is it still that bad in some of these public schools that are, you know, in the districts that you've been looking at, District 28 here in Queens, sort of on the other side of the tracks?
0: You want to go first, Max? or <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, If you want me to go first, it's fine. It's cool. I just, uh, yeah, I do. I'll go first because I'm a little bit closer to it as a parent. My kids have mostly gone to public school, but now the youngest one is going to a private secondary school, and my oldest one is going to a private University right now. I went to mostly public school, but went to private school uh, for for high school. I'm glad that when you you began talking, you put bad school in air quotes because I think that it's it's really impossible to answer that question. uh, That is, what's what makes for a good school and what makes for a bad school. I will say that there are a lot of schools in New York City that that the people consider to be failing. Um, and they consider them to be failing because of indicators like test scores, because of where the kids end up beyond those schools as far as further, furthering their education. And there's a lot of dissatisfaction among parents with the school system. And that's why you see so many parents, particularly middle class parents, really sort of jockeying for position and trying to get into a handful of, of schools that they consider to be, quote unquote, good. And many of those schools, those schools, I would say, mostly fall into one of two categories. There could be schools where they're predominantly children and families of color, but have some kind of special programming, some kind of way of defining themselves that distinguishes them from other schools and tries to introduce uh, special features that uh, make them quote-unquote good schools, or they are schools that are predominantly, if if not predominantly white, at least are predominantly non-black, and I would say mostly non-brown as well. And so, yes, I would say that in the school system, there is a general sense of dissatisfaction, And that there is a scarcity of schools that can actually provide quality education.
1: Max, what about you?
2: I would just add to that, that my experience from our reporting in both seasons is that that sense of dissatisfaction really escalates as you move through the system. If you just look at the rates of how many people are choosing to go to their zone school, for example... More people are going to the zoned elementary school. Fewer people are going to the zoned middle school in districts where, where situations like this exist. In the second season, in particular, we talk about how the stakes change with middle school, where a lot of middle schools really lack the kind of programming that parents are really looking for uh, in terms of extracurriculars, in terms of preparations for pre- uh, preparatory classes for high school, where the stakes are starting to feel higher, where they're you know they're more worried about their kids falling in with the wrong crowd, or so to speak, in neighborhoods where, where families feel more vulnerable. You know, you asked, is, is this still happening? For sure, that's still happening that parents, especially at the middle school level, feel like they don't have the programs that their kids need in order to be successful in high school and beyond. I think one of the conundrums of school funding in New York City is that frequently when you look at the actual, the hard numbers, which is harder to do than you would think, is to actually get really reliable numbers about how much these schools, how much money these schools are spending per student. But even when you look at those numbers, when you find those numbers, what you'll see is that sometimes schools in uh, poor neighborhoods um schools that you would assume would be underfunded, sometimes it looks like they're spending more money per student than schools in wealthier neighborhoods. But you have to really peel back those numbers because they the, the numbers themselves don't really tell the whole story about what conditions those schools face, what kind of restrictions the money is subject to for principals. And a lot of the resources that we're talking about when we're talking about schools are not money. They're for lack of a better word, human resources, including teachers and, and principals then labor issues come into play and how much power teachers have and don't have about where they get placed in terms of seniority, it gets really complicated. And, and also in terms of the overcrowding, which you talked about frequently, actually because of the way that populations have shifted in New York city over the years in many places like bed where we've uh, focused our first season, the schools in bed are actually 50 years ago, schools in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which is a historically black neighborhood in Brooklyn, were so overcrowded that, that sc- kids had to go to school in shifts, which is just heartbreaking when you think about it. I mean, kids didn't get a full day of instruction, and then they were supposed to be somehow prepared to go to middle school when they were not getting a full day of instruction in elementary school. And now those same school buildings are half empty. That doesn't mean that because the school buildings are half empty, like the kids are getting more attention or getting a better education. In fact, A school not having that many kids doesn't necessarily mean that they have smaller class sizes even because of the way, you know, um, those things can shake out. But overcrowding doesn't necessarily track to underperformance in the way that it's often talked about. Um, And and because especially when you have certain schools that Mark was talking about, where lots of middle class parents are jockeying to get into, those schools are teeming with kids because everybody wants to go there. And yet they're still, in many cases, you know, high performing, which is why people want to go there
1: when I was growing up, I went to my zone school. I went to my elementary school was right around the block from where we lived. Again, it was a NYCHA development. So, you know, all in the the sort of the typical brown brick buildings that, that people associate with public housing, that was the community, you know, that density. And that was the community that I grew up in. So elementary school was right around the corner. That's where you went. Junior high was three blocks away. That's where you went. There was no special training. There was no special anything. I think junior high, there was a, uh, what do they call the SP, the special progress class, which I think is now considered gifted and talented. And when I was not initially accepted into that part, my mom was like, wait a minute, we've got to go down here and figure out what happened. Why are you in this third tier class? I was moved very quickly into the two-year SP program. The overcrowding issue for me was about the lack of attention. And the lack and the sort of chaotic, you know, environment that the school was operating in because we were so underfunded, because we were in such a low income community. Nobody had parents who were, I mean, I'd say nobody, but there were very few kids who had parents who were like, had the time, you know, to invest in these sorts of decisions to go fight for their kids. I mean, my parents were busy getting their degrees to become educators and working in other schools, you know, equally underfunded. And I'm a parent. I have a two and a half year old. And now I'm like, does that even exist? Do we have zoned schools uh, anymore? Do people just go to their zoned school? And I found out that I am not zoned for the quote unquote good school in my neighborhood. So I was like, well, wait a minute, what am I zoned for? Where does my kid go in a couple of years? And so I suddenly was like, well, I'm not in District 28, I'm in District 27, which is like, how did that happen? There's just a couple of blocks. Like this whole like complicated ecosystem now, is a little intimidating considering I just went to the school I was supposed to go to, right? Which wasn't a great school. It wasn't memorable in any way, shape or form outside of its performing arts program. And we can talk about that um, in a minute. But outside of that, I'm like, where do I even begin with my two and a half year old?
0: Much of your story actually tracks with mine in the sense that I too went to, I walked to my elementary and middle school. Never thought about going someplace else for school I was in an SP program. And I don't, you know, I, I I, think it's safe to say I'm older than you are. But I don't I know. Say- I
1: don't know, Mark.
0: <laughs> well, we won't go. We won't know. go. <laughs> I'll just say that I think what has changed, what has shifted over the last couple of decades is the whole culture around school choice and this sense that you um as a parent and as a family you you were consumers and that you get to sort of pick and choose what schools you get to go to now i'm i'm not going to i'm not going to pla- place any kind of value judgment one way or the other i'm just confirming that you know when i went to school and when a lot of other people went to school you just you did not consider any kind of broader universe of of schools other than the ones that were around the corner from you, I did, you know even the conversation around good and bad never came up. My father and many of my aunts and uncles were also in the school system. My father was a truant officer. I had an uncle, aunts, and uncles who were teachers and, and and principals. So they valued public education, and it was just assumed that that's the kind of education we were going to get. I would just say that dur- because of the era of of choice it's much different. People think of their schools in terms of good and bad, whether they should as try to escape them or not. What, you know, They are very much in tune to the zone that they're in, the district they're in, and what their choices are within the public school system as well as without.
1: And That seems to have created this new world that as a new parent uh, and first-time parent and solo parent, that I'm going, oh my God, I don't even know how to navigate this. And it's interesting. I've always had a foot in two worlds, right? I grew up in the projects, but I've worked at the New York Times, right? So I have like, you know, these very elite experiences, but with a very, very, very deep foot in not having um, a lot and, and in the wealth gap, you know? And so when I look around and I see parents of privilege, Parents who are middle class and over, a lot of white parents in particular, but also parents of color who want their kids to go to have a certain experience, it feels very class-based and it feels very much like, feels like getting into, trying to get into Harvard. Maybe that's like my impression. I haven't put my kid through that, but that's where it feels like we are at right now. Is that what you're seeing?
0: I'll let Max get a word in, but I will say that more than any other time I can can think of Perception is what rules the day, right? So there are reputations that start to form around schools. And again, you put good in, in air quotes. It's these perceptions that in some instances have little to do with any kind of um, objective reality. Uh, that is what is ruling what what schools people are going to and what people what people consider to be good and 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 bad schools i've 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 seen schools where they've only been considered good really because it's mostly white folks who are going there and there becomes this feedback loop where that perception actually sort of calcifies into reality so yeah most parents i talk to think of this as an environment where they have to throw elbows where you've got to yell as loud as you can that you've got to do things that you have that you would not have ordinarily done in other parts of your life just to get what is needed for your children and again there's this sense of scarcity that that kind of rules the day unless you live in a particular neighborhood and you feel like what you and I experience where you just sort of walk out your door and you go to your school there's some there are parents in this in this city That have that level of comfort and privilege. But I would say the vast majority of families don't have that. They feel as though in order to get into a a quote-unquote good school, that they've got to go over and beyond, that they've got to go shopping. And many go out there with a sense of anxiety because they really don't know where to start.
1: Max, how's that playing out in my neighboring school district? Because that was really District 28. I mean, it feels like based on the podcast, you know you can sort of hear the tension from the parents in the you know the quote unquote wealthier part of the community which is forest hills which is for folks who have not been there a uh, going rate right now for a two bedroom one bathroom co-op in forest hills is a half a million dollars trust me i have been looking that does not include a balcony i live in a neighboring community called q gardens where you know, it's a little bit more affordable, but that's if you're living in, a, in an apartment, not a house. And so, you know, Forest Hills is is where everyone goes, and it's quite affluent. It's, like I said, half a million dollars for a two-bedroom, one-bath apartment, not even a private house, an apartment, compared to the other side of the community, which is browner and less affluent. It felt like these parents on the more affluent, whiter side of Forest Hills were like, basically saying, hell no, uh-uh, I don't want my kid going there. I don't want, I don't want to risk, you know, any of the, the privilege that I have for this ideal of diversity, which I find comes up a lot in progressive circles. We want these ideals. We think it's great to have diversity. We think it's great to integrate, but just, I don't want to do it with my kid.
2: Well, Forest Hills is an interesting case because Forest Hills actually is very diverse with a big asterisk. Right. Forest Hills 50 years ago was ninety nine percent white. And it's it it isn't like that today. Um, It's got people from all over the world. Anybody will tell you that. And they're not wrong. Forest Hills doesn't have a lot of black people. And so it's really important when we have this conversation about diversity that we're clear about what we are really talking about. Something that we talk about a lot in season two is that the use of the word diversity kind of became popularized as a way to avoid talking about what people were talking about when they talked about integration, which was specifically the historic exclusion of specifically black people from institutions like schools in this country. And the other thing about Forest Hills is that, you know, Mark was saying that there are a few, you know, pockets in New York City where people are pretty happy with their schools and they can just walk out the door and go to their own school. It's all, you know, it's all copacetic. Forest Hills is one of those places, particularly at the elementary school level. And the thing is, is that people will throw elbows, not just to get into the schools. People will throw elbows to get, or I don't even say throw elbows. I mean, we heard a lot of stories from people about like people, really making sacrifices to live in Forest Hills so that they would get access uh, to those neighborhood schools. I mean, you know, a two bedroom, one bath, try putting a family, a really big family in one of these small apartments. Because the thing about Forest Hills is that it's quite dense, actually. There's a lot of high rise apartment buildings. It's not just there are parts of it that are single family homes, very kind of Mayberry, really expensive homes in Forest Hills gardens. But there's a lot of apartments and a lot of families are not not just, you know, sort of, doing the American dream, working really hard to be able to afford those places, but actually like living in uncomfortable conditions to squeeze their families into small apartments in order to be able to get into those schools. Um, Now, that's not, you know, that's not a pleasant situation for them. Throwing elbows to get into the school of your choice is not a situation for everybody who who has to go through that, which is as, as so many parents do. For a lot of people, that doesn't seem to lead to the conclusion that, like, we need to dismantle the conditions that, that force us to feel like I have to make these sacrifices to live in a tiny apartment with my family, or I have to make these act. I have to um, run around town shopping schools and, and making phone calls and sending emails to make sure I can get my kid into this place or that place. For a lot of people, it's like that's just what I got to do. It's not. Maybe it shouldn't be that way, and I should work with other people to, to change those, those conditions. It's just like, well, that's just how it is.
1: I think, you know, what your point, when you said people are are living in, in these situations, I moved to my community before I even thought I was ever going to become a mom. So school district was like the last thing on my mind. I wanted, you know, accessibility, you know, Forest Hills has a train, has multiple uh, connections to Manhattan, has the commuter rail right there. It has, you know, lots of, Places to eat. It's got a little strip with shops and restaurants and all that. So it's a wonderful community to be in. You know, that's where I go if I want to go shopping or go out to eat or something like that. And since I've been in this community and had a child and a pandemic and God knows what else, you know, now I've had to have those conversations with myself where it's like, do I, you know, I mentioned I was looking at apartments in Forest Hills because I thought I cannot afford to spend. You know, I'm spending now fourteen hundred dollars a month on daycare for my kid. And I was like, I can't afford to spend that for the next twelve years. There's just no way. So wherever my son ends up, it's gotta be a public school or a charter. There's just not I mean, unless I'm you know, there's this big money coming down the pike, I don't see how that's gonna be feasible. So is it a question of me selling this current one bedroom, by the way, I have a one bedroom with my kid, um, and trying to get you know, his own room, moved to that half million dollar thing that's gonna, you know, put me under probably for the rest of my life, just so he can go to a decent school, right? It feels like this is what I'm up against. And I'm, you know, I have master's degree. I've worked at some of the best news outlets in the world. I feels like I'm up against something pretty impossible without moving. I've even considered moving to New Jersey, right? To the the mythical Montclair the land of the uh you know progressive you know do gooder but i have a you know million dollar home but i want to live in this enclave you know and i know i, I keep saying progressives because i feel there's a certain amount of hypocrisy embedded in progressive politics right now particularly when it comes to the nimbyism of you know we want this but we don't want our kids to be affected by it but even when you think about moving to montclair it's like i'm going to pick up and go spend a ton of taxes you know, to do that, there just doesn't seem to be any more a viable option. You know, as we mentioned, to go to the your neighborhood school without the parents having to make some major sacrifice, or having to throw elbows. And frankly, throwing elbows takes a lot of time. I mean, you need to make phone calls, you need to know who to talk to, you need to know who to advocate for, you need to get out there and be sending emails. Like if you're a single parent working full time, you don't have time for that. Who has time to do that? If you're a working class or, or full-time working parent, it just feels like the odds are really in favor of those who have privilege, knowledge um, and connections.
2: I will say there are a lot of schools that maybe don't have the best test scores that you don't really know what's going on inside the building until you go there and check it out for yourself. I mean we talked to a parent who was zoned for PS99 which is a school that people really want to get into and That's she awesome. met, awesome. and she met the principal and heard the principal say some things. I, you know, I don't, it's a hearsay. I don't want to repeat them. but she heard the principal say some things casual. And she was like, I don't want my kid at that school in that environment where those are the values. She zoned for 99 and ended up sending her kids someplace else. I always like to use PS48 as an example in South Jamaica because we spent a lot of time with the principal of that school. The The now former principal of PS48 in South Jamaica is a powerhouse and people, people love her. There's a lot of love and trust in that school. They still struggle to get the best teachers because it's in South Jamaica. And when teachers... Teachers don't always want to go there, but that is a a loving environment uh, where kids are getting a lot of attention and they still haven't cracked 50% in terms of proficiency on the test scores. If you just look at those numbers, you know, you wouldn't know necessarily what's really going on behind those walls. It's a different situation. I grew up in Los Angeles when my parents had to choose an elementary school for me. They never, I mean, they admitted to me when I asked them about it, they never visited the school down the block. They didn't even go in they made assumptions about it based on what they were hearing from their peers and what they saw when they walked down the street. And you just never really going on, know what's going on at a school until you go there and you talk to people. Um, and listen, sometimes you go there and you want to talk to people. We talked, we heard a lot of stories like this in the first season in bed and the school doesn't make it easy. They're not welcoming. They're not friendly. They don't want to answer your questions. And you know, then their enrollment's going down and they wonder why it's like, well, you know, Parents are if parents come to you with an open mind just wanting to see what's going on in the school and you don't have an open door, that doesn't leave a good impression. Um, and that is in the current environment, that's on schools and principals to make sure and parent coordinators to make sure that they're opening those doors like that.
1: How can we ensure an equitable education for students who are coming from the communities that I came from, right who are, lo- who are dealing and saddled with so much? in South Jamaica so much. And not to suggest that privileged kids are not dealing with issues. Of course they are. But I think they have more resources at their disposal than underprivileged kids and underfunded schools and poor and working class communities. How can we ensure that when their parents are already stretched very thin, you know, when they're already making enough sacrifices, how can we ensure that these kids are getting a better education? Can we at this point?
0: I think you ask a very important question, and I think it's important to kind of deconstruct again good and bad schools, what we're really talking about. Good and bad schools rarely has anything to do with what's actually going on inside the classroom. That is, oftentimes you go to places, there's, no, there's nothing, there's no special instructions, no special programming. Essentially, what many good, quote unquote, good schools are is just the concentration of people with some kind of social and economic uh, privilege. If most of your students, their parents, they have parents who went to university, if they read a lot of books, um, if they have well-paying, stable jobs, all of that goes into the school with those students. Um, and, on, and I you know, having been to schools where there been, there's been a certain level of social comfort and privilege, I can tell you that oftentimes there really is nothing special going on in those schools whatsoever. Um, And you've got a lot of other schools with black and brown. Teachers are deeply committed where there's all kinds of special programs. And you just, when you're there, you have to take advantage of of them. Um, And so I think it's important to, again, think about what we mean by good and bad schools and When you have social capital, you can bring that into school and make it work for you. And if you don't, then you're gonna always have a challenging school. I I don't think that there's no way to divorce what the what the social and economic conditions of the families going into the schools are with what the experience of that school is. And that is why in many instances we focus so much on housing policy, for instance. You cannot talk about schools and the quality of schools in isolation of residential patterns and how neighborhoods have been constructed to advance privilege for certain people and how that privilege extends into the schools as well. So when you look at a place like Forest Hills, for instance, that has a very deep history of segregation of keeping Black people out of, out of that neighborhood, that extends to the schools and it extends to the amount of privilege that is extended to kids in those schools and the the amount of privilege that is not extended to kids who live, for instance, on the south side of, of District 28. And so you'll never fully address the educational disparities in a school until you begin to address residential economic um and and larger social disparities in neighborhoods as well
2: you know it the the big question which is like why can't all schools be good schools choice is not really an answer to that question but it's like a mechanism for more people to be able to go to schools that they want to go to but it is not an answer to the question of how can all good schools be good schools i think there's a there's a for some people there's an ideological belief that if you just have more choices than all then that that creates a kind of rising tide that lifts all boats and that's just not actually how it works it's sort of the opposite of how it works it means that you know when there are more choices it's just more competition and competition creates winners and losers Competition can encourage some schools to step up their game, but there's always going to be uh, losers at the end of the day. And so choice is, is certainly not enough. All schools should be good schools was frequently accompanied by, which is why I shouldn't have to change anything about the setup that I've got, which is working for me. All schools should be good schools. Let the DOE figure it out and leave me alone. It's a big city and we are all interconnected, whether we like it or not.
1: But to that point, you know, we've spoken to parents recently who have chosen, for example, to put their kids in majority black schools, like white parents who would say, I'm going to deliberately make the choice to put my kid in a more diverse school, right? I spoke to a parent in my building yesterday who, who they're a white couple, they have a white daughter and they were like, you know, I don't want her to go to an all white school, right? Is that part of the solution parents like, and Nicole Hannah-Jones has made this point, right? Like putting her daughter in a, and for those who don't know Nicole, she's, you know, the preeminent education journalist here in the United States and sort of putting her daughter into a predominantly black and brown school in Brooklyn, you're making that an active choice as opposed to just, you know, trying to do something
0: else. Is that part of the solution? To say, is it part of, you know, the solution? I won't say that the kinds of decisions these these folks are making it's not a bad thing and i certainly wouldn't dissuade it but i think at the end of the day it trains our eyes on this idea that the school system is going to be improved by all of our sort of micro decisions and individual decisions when indeed it it actually there's some structural changes that have to be made um and anything else is only going to change things at the margins For a handful of people, right? And so when we talk, for instance, about segregation, uh, we have to acknowledge that that segregation has had an impact. It's created generations worth of trauma, of disadvantage. And so we really have to train our minds away from this idea that the decision the person makes down the street is going to ultimately be a part of what rescues our schools. It's gonna to have to go far beyond that. And I certainly would not dissuade people from making those kinds of what I feel are in some ways more political decisions than 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 educational decisions. And yet you will talk to parents who will say, Yeah, that's nice, that's cool, but even saying that is an act of privilege, right? This this sense that you can make what you consider to be some kind of social sacrifice. But at the end of the day, my child is going to be okay because I've got other things that can supplement their education and make sure that they're going to come out of this experience unscathed. Most people don't feel like they have that kind of uh, convenience of privilege, margin of error that that they can compensate for in their lives. So that's how I would respond to that.
2: I will also say that what kids go to what schools is only ever going to be part of, I guess what we're calling the answer, the solution, right? People accuse integration advocates of, of being like really sort of maniacally focused on um, on race and like what kids go to what schools and if you just put kids next to each other, that's going to solve all the problems. And I, we've actually never spoken to any integration advocates who actually believe that. What kids go to what schools, whether it's one family making that choice or other kinds of policies that will change how where kids go to school is is never going to by itself create for a for a holistically good educational experience for kids admissions policy where kids go to school has to be part of a broader set of policies that make the school system more more effective um for for all for all children That includes who who the staff is. That includes what's being taught in classrooms. Um, And I think, you know, people who take this issue seriously know that and will say that to anybody who will listen.
1: I have a two and a half year old. What's my what do I do now? I'm looking at 3K and praying hard. I'm like, that's free, right? And then after that, we have to make a decision. And I'm like, I guess I got to walk myself down to PS 51 and take a look and talk to the, get, go, go see where it is. Cause that's our local zone school for now, provided we don't move to Montclair or Forest Hills. Um, I don't know how that's going to happen, but we'll figure that out. Um, but that's, I guess that's the next step. I mean, for parents in my situation, start early. Is that the answer?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, Definitely start early. And, and I would say, and I, look, I don't, I don't know your situation. I think that you're going to be okay (laughs) because no, seriously, because you're already thinking of these, these questions very seriously. You're already thinking in strategic terms about your child's education. And I think that as long as you are an informed parent that you do have some level of social capital that I believe you have, um, you're going to be able to leverage whatever you have and bring all these informed decisions into your child's life that ultimately are going to have a very important impact. And I think, I think at the end of the day, you're going to be fine.
1: I do think my kid is going to be okay, but I do often think like, is this fair, you know? And that's kind of that, that lingering feeling of like, it's just, you know, I know what those kids are dealing with in underperforming schools and underfunded schools and overcrowded and chaotic environments. You know, I know what those teachers are going through. My parents were among them, you know, teaching in a lot of those schools. So it does tug at me, you know, even though, because I do feel like, okay, I know I'll probably be able to figure something out, but there are so many people that won't um, have that. And, and I do think about them quite a bit, so
0: yeah, if if you listen to our seas- our first season, you'll hear both Max and I sort of wrestle with these very questions and it's impossible to have any kind of, you know, to be a a middle-class parent in this system and not feel slime all over you, you know? Um because it's it's very easy to see how unjust the system is and Throwing elbows means that someone's going to get it in the face, and you know, like Max said before, they're gonna they're gonna be winners and they're gonna be losers, and you're trying your best to be a winner. And what does that mean for so many other people in the system? It, it's hard to come out of that feeling good about yourself, to be quite honest.
2: And I do understand why people leave the city because they're like, I don't <laughs> miss me with this mess, like. Not, not, not just because they, they, you know, you want a better education, but because you don't want to have to deal with this, you don't want to have to deal with the slime. I get that. You know, I don't have kids. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. You know, when I'm in your position, we'll see what I end up doing. I really, I don't know.
1: I would recommend, Max. I would recommend not doing it right as a pandemic is starting. <laughs> Those would be my not. Do not recommend the kid thing. Sure, the the kid pandemic. That that intersection do not recommend. It doesn't sound like fun. Um, but if, if, if it happens, if it does happen, if we hit another global pandemic, you can reach out. I can show you how to <laughs> how to navigate that one. <laughs> Folks, thank you so much, Max Friedman, Mark Winston Griffith. Thank you so much for talking and sharing both what y'all have been working on and also just having a really you know substantive conversation about education in New York City, which is such a hot topic, um, and I really appreciate y'all taking the time. Yeah, thanks
0: for having us. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here.
1: Thank you. Next week, we're heading to Oakland, where we'll pick up this question of integration and what it means to unite across racial lines. We'll learn about how parents there are fighting to ensure their kids receive basic skills like literacy.
0: So you have to have multiple people with the message that we can get all our kids to read.
1: This is a podcast from Ed Post. I'm your host, Tanzina Vega. Our show is produced by Maureen Kelleher. Our sound editor is Aklas Salim. And music is by Ayana Jacobs L. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.